0: You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. morning. I love your accents. (laughs) Unusual dialect, I'm not sure how I feel about that. We are partly responsible for the fact that you say about funny. I'm just saying, just saying about so, so that's, yeah, that's weird. Um, great to be with you. Um, love our fellowship of churches. What a privilege for me to be able to stand with God's word in front of you all. Um, been excited all week to be here with you and um, excited about that. So, why don't you grab your Bibles? Um, there's going to be ushers coming up and then the aisles. Stick your hand up if you want to get a hold of one. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 17. Uh, through to uh, verse 28 in a moment. Um, While you're looking that up, let me just say, uh, when we planted Harvest Bible Chapel Glasgow uh, in 2009, it was with the desire to plant a church that would serve and reach our whole country. Um, So we are the only Harvest Bible Chapel in Western Europe, and we are the only one, so therefore, the only one in the UK uh, but our desire is to plant more uh, Harvest Bible chapels. And if you come and visit us, sorry, let me say again, when you come and visit us, um you will, you will find, I, I, this. I, I said to, to, to I was some of the elders after after the service this morning, this is the most like Harvest Glasgow of any other Harvest Bible Chapel I've ever been. It just feels like home. Um, it just feels like, I feel like I was back in Glasgow this morning worshiping with you all and being with you all genuinely. And um, so that's been a lot of fun for me. I, I, haven't, I, I haven't felt homesick, so thank you for that. Um, I'm a sensitive soul. Um, but if you come, you would find exactly the same things as you prize and value here. We uh, want to preach the authority of God's word without Paul. We want to lift high the name of Jesus in worship. We believe firmly in the power of prayer. And we want to be bold with the gospel and evangelism. And we want to meet in small groups. Uh, But when we planted in 2009, we wanted all of those things to feed what we called a culture of humility. We wanted the church to be to to be to to, to, to demonstrate a culture of humility and how we would engage with God first of all and how we would engage with one another. So we want the preaching to be such as fuels a culture of humility, the worship to, to fuel a culture of humility, the, the prayer and the evangelism, and when we get together in small groups that we would, there would be a culture of humility about who we are before God and how we are with one another. And so really, that's what we're going to think about this morning. But maybe just to start to say this before we read God's word uh, with what, together. Um, if you're looking for a culture of humility in your church, if that's your desire, if that's your goal, if that's something you're going to prize as a church, if you are going to prize a culture of humility, that culture of humility is not possible unless I am personally, unless you are personally convinced of Humility. A culture of humility is not possible unless you are personally convinced of the value of humility. A culture of humility in this local church is not possible unless you are personally convicted of the damage and danger of pride in your life. So that's really what we're going to look at this morning. So I'm sure you're all glad you came this morning. It's a nice, easy topic, nothing that's too close to our hearts or anything like that. So let's read God's word uh, together and see what it has to say. And then let's unpack these things together after I've prayed, okay? So verse 17, this is what God's word has to say to us this morning. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to him, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and, and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the turned heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray and then we'll think about these things together. Father, we are so thankful to you for what we've sung this morning about how glorious and great you are. And Father, truly we pray that you would give us a, a fresh glimpse of your glory, a fresh glimpse of your greatness to fuel our humility, to remind us of the need we have before you to bow the knees of our of our lives, the knees of our hearts, the, the, the tendency of our souls, that those all of those things would be brought before your heavenly throne. And that we would no longer seek to be king of our own hearts and king of our own lives. the, the, the idea of calling the shots in our life and being the one who's in control that, that would become a horrible thought to us that would be the furthest thing from our hearts and our minds, but rather we would want to, uh, to, to give all of that to you because you deserve it and are worthy of it. So Father, we pray you'd help us as we now turn to your word and as we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. Father, we pray your spirit would press it into our hearts and there would be much fruit in our lives as a result of our time together in your word this morning. In Jesus' name and all God's, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You need help. Okay? I'm just going to spit out there from the beginning. You need help. You can write it down. I need help. You need help. The message of the gospel is a great reminder that you need help. And the level of help you need is not an insignificant level of help. It's an eternity type, heart-altering type of help that you need. And that level of help the level of help that you need is indicative of the level of humility you should have. The level of help that the gospel reminds us that we need is indicative of the level of humility we should all have. It's been great to sing these songs about how glorious and great God is, but unless that accelerates or provokes something in our hearts, that's all it is. There are song lyrics which we sing together but do we believe that God is glorious and great? If he is, then we should marvel all the more at the grace that he gives us that he allows us to be called his children and be part of his family. Is that God's grace is designed to keep us grounded as it seeks to grow us. And as we understand what God has done for us, grace is designed to spark within us a desire to serve him. So we enter into what we've read this morning as us entering into the final phase of Jesus' mission on earth as Matthew uh, records it. And we find him now turning his head towards Jerusalem. It's, it tells us that from the beginning. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. So this is his final journey to, to Jerusalem. The, his, his death is imminent. This is uh, just over a week before his crucifixion and resurrection. And we understand that what's going to happen at the end of this is that he, and he tells his disciples what's going to happen at the end of the Jerusalem road. He tells them that he's going to die and he's going to sacrifice himself for us. And the important thing for us to remember is we consider this matter of humility and service and the calling on each one of our lives to be pursuing those things in in our life together as the local church. The thing we need to bear in mind is that that if we are able to serve him in any way, it is because he first sacrificed himself for us. If, if I am able, if you are able, if we are able to serve him in any way, it is because he first sacrificed himself for me, for you, for us. That is the, the fuel. That is the motivation. That is, that is the, 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 the prime reason why we give ourselves in service and humility. It is only possible because of his transforming work in our lives. if you're able to serve him, if you're able to serve him in any way, it is only because he first sacrificed himself for you. And that's where we start with this profound idea that Jesus shows us how he serves us. That's the first thing. Jesus shows us how he serves us. He, we see that in verses 17 to 19 of what we re- we've just read. Jesus shows us how he serves us. And I want you to th- think about that for a minute, this idea that Jesus serves you. What an awesome thought it is that the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who by him all things were created, things in heaven and in earth, thrones, powers, rulers, dominions, authorities. All things were created by him and for him and through through him all things hold together. He came to serve you. That is a mind-blowing thought. Jesus shows us how he serves us on this Jerusalem road. They see Jerusalem in the distance. The, the, the scene as Matthew sets the scene. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, they see Jerusalem in the distance. And this wasn't the first time they, they'd been in the city. The dis- but, uh, but as they look up the road, as they look to the hill that Jerusalem is set upon, the disciples see the city, but Jesus sees the cross. And so he gathers his team in. It's like, it's like a huddle. He says, "Come on, come on, guys, huddle in. Right, boys, here's what's going to happen next. And there's a spoiler alert here if you don't know how the story ends. This is what's going to happen next, he says to them. I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. I'm going to be condemned to death. I'm going to be delivered to the Gentiles. That's the Romans and Pontius Pilate, a bit of what he talks about in verses 17 to 19. Then he says, I'm going to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and I'm going to rise to rise again in the third day. That's the description he gives them. Now, there's a few things to note about this first, how amazingly specific and accurate it is. He knew what was going to happen. How detailed this is—a whole week out. This is exactly what's going to happen. It's like a timetable of of it's like a, it's like a timetable of of um, that Thursday into the Good Friday. He didn't put the times beside it, but I'm sure he probably could have done. First, how specific and accurate it is. Second, how hard it must have been to keep walking up the road to the city. Knowing what lay at the end of it. And just think for a moment about why he would do that. He walked to the end of that road. He walked up to the city. He pursued that road knowing what lay at the end of it. For God's glory and for your good. And third... How awesome it is that Jesus starts this journey having just said the last will be first and the first will be last. So this is the context of what we're looking at. Uh, verses. Uh, look at the last verse of 19, verse 30 of chapter 19. Sorry, v- chapter, verse 30. I'm, I'm jet lagged. <laughs> verse 30 of chapter 19, and then look again at verse 16 of chapter 20. Verse 30 of chapter 19 says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Verse 16 of, verse, of chapter 20 says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. So this is all happening with those two great statements ringing in their ears. And how awesome it is that Jesus starts this journey having just said those things because what he's going to give them, what he's going to show them, he's going to give them an active and personal and awesome demonstration of what it looks like for the, for, for the first to be last. Because here's what we know about Jesus. He is and always will be eternally first. The one who was and is and eternally will be first made himself last for you. He made himself last to serve you by becoming a sacrifice for you, to save you, to make a son or daughter out of you and to secure eternity for you. Allow that to sink in for a moment. The one who was and is and eternally will be first, unrivaled, undefeated, unstoppable. The one who was and is and eternally will be first, made himself last in order to provide for your salvation. So Jesus shows us how he serves us by willingly sacrificing himself for us. And in doing so, he reminds us that true greatness has gravity. True greatness has gravity. So with the last, first, first, last thing and Jesus' outline of what will happen next ringing in their ears, uh, James and John do the, the obvious thing to do. They send their mom to ask Jesus for a promotion. Obvious, right? What would you do? Quick, he sounds like he's going to die soon. Let's ask him quick before he's dead. It's almost that kind of sense. It's like, really? Who thought this was a good idea? So, into, into uh, stage right comes Mrs. Zebedee. James, John, we're going to Jesus. We're going to ask him for a pay rise. Really? Mom, what did you think? What are you thinking? So Mrs. Zebedee goes to Jesus and says, can I ask you a favor? (laughs) Jesus says, what do you want? Do you think he felt as if something good wasn't coming? Do you see how lame this picture is? Don't send someone else or stand behind someone else while they do your dirty work. Mrs. Zebedee says, give my boys the most important places in your kingdom. See, there's an important lesson here for us in regards to the danger of having ambition for someone else. I think they should be given this position. I'm upset that they haven't been made a leader. Why haven't you asked them to do this or that? Those kind of things, that ambition for someone else can be destructive in the life of a local church. We need to be so careful. So up comes Mrs. Zeavy. He asks Jesus a question, and, and Where where do you think James and John were at this point? Do you think with every question that Jesus asked her back, they're taking a little step back? Mom, stop embarrassing us. As if they weren't the ones who'd asked her to go there in the first place. Mom, mom. So they're tucked in behind. More likely they were saying, Mom, we're too scared to ask, will you go first? Well, it's lame. So they're tucked in behind and Jesus looks past Mrs. Zebedee and asks them, "Are you able?" He, asks, he looks at James and John in the eye and says, "Are you able? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink?" Now they've just heard Jesus describe the cup. I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. I'm going to be condemned to death. I'm going to be delivered to the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. That's the cup. They've just heard him describe it, but they still haven't grasped it. They still think in their minds, they're back with Indiana Jones. They think that the cup is a cup of glory. They think it's the most attractive cup ever. They think it's a cup of glory. But that's not the cup that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the cup of putting yourself second, being willing to sacrifice yourself for God's glory and for the good of those he's put in your life. So it's the cup that Jesus is talking about. Well, the cup across scripture is used to picture God's wrath and judgment. So we've got some verses that are gonna come, come up on the screen for you just to be able to, to see a little bit about what that is about. Verse, Psalm 75, verse eight says, for in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. With foaming wine, the idea is of a kind of, it's got an angry effervescence about it. It's foaming is. And it's to be drunk by specifically the wicked of the earth. And nobody, none of the wicked of the earth are going to be excluded from that. And then Isaiah 51 verse 17. It says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. He's saying, wake up, wake up before the judgment comes that's going to knock you off your feet. It's alerting them to the danger and the incoming disaster of the judgment of God. And then then Jeremiah 51 verse 7. Describing how God uses external agencies in order to bring about his judgment. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. All of the designation, all of the descriptions to do with the cup all the time, every time the cup comes up. And this kind of idea is a warning that judgment is coming. The cup is the judgment of God on people like you and me. It's the righteous and holy anger of God extended towards those who have rejected and rebelled him. That's what it's talking about. So, maybe we can say this that the cup is both self inflicted. We choose to rebel against God and reject God. We choose to sin. It's both self inflicted and also sovereignly appointed. That's what we see in these verses. It's the person drinks voluntarily of the contents that serve to vindicate God's holy anger. It's that often in God's providence and God's sovereignty, the, the means of his judgment is. The thing we see merit of and pursue as sin. So when Jesus talks about the cup, he is talking about the ultimate purpose of all that he describes in verses 17 to 19. And you look at these things and why did Jesus have to come and die? Why did Jesus have to go through these things that he describes in verses 17 to 19, being handed, delivered over to the chief priests and scribes? Condemned to death. Delivered to the Gentiles. Mocked, flogged, crucified. Why did he have to go through that? Because we sin. Because you sin. And because we put ourselves in a collision course with God. And his righteous and holy anger against us because of that sin. Because we reject him and rebel against him. So why the cross? Because of the cup. Why the cross? Because of our sin. Why the sacrifice? Because we've chosen our own way. The purpose of his arrest and trial and mocking and flogging and crucifixion was to provide a context for him to take upon himself the sins of the world and to experience, to drink from the cup of God's wrath instead of you and I. That's what he offers you because he loves you. Ephesians talks about how we were by nature objects of God's wrath as we placed ourselves in a collision course with God because of the things we'd chosen instead of and above Him. And that puts us in the sight line in the sights of, of God's wrath and His anger in the cup. And the only way for us to get away from that was for someone perfect, i.e. someone, not me, to die in my place. This is John 3, 16. He loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for you so that you might not perish but have eternal life. So every time the guy behind the weightlifter in the Olympics stands up with a verse, that's what we're to think of. The cup has been removed for those who trust in Jesus there is freedom and forgiveness for anyone who puts their faith in him. You see, God's wisdom declared that the only way to deal with the sin that I voluntarily pursue in a way that vindicated the purity that he demands was for Jesus to die on a cross in my place. In short, I choose to sin and Jesus chose the cross in order to cover for that sin. And he offers to cover for your sin as well. as you look at your life, as you look back through the patterns of your life, we all need to understand this. I need to understand this just as much as you do. You have sinned your life up. You have sinned your life up. All of the mess and all of the brokenness and all of the hurt and all of the shame and all of the guilt that you have is a result of the sin that is in this world, either yours or the sin that you encounter in the world around about you. We are all in the process of sinning our lives up, and that's why we need Jesus. Jesus drank the cup because you have sinned your life up. And in case we think this is just some small matter, listen, listen to how intensely Jesus reflects on the upcoming cause just a few days later. In Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, verses 38 and 39, as the day of his crucifixion was approaching he says to his disciples, he goes to them and says, my soul is very sorrowful. There's Matthew 26, verses 38 and 39. Let's get up on the screen for you guys to be able to track with that. He says to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Is there another way? But if this is what it takes, I'm going to do it. Because I love them. And he did that for you. That's a measure of the help you need. That is a measure of the grace that is available to you in Jesus. So that puts Jesus' question in perspective, right? James and John saying, we're glad we asked. It's also an indication of how clueless James and John are. We are able. Really? Even though they had heard Jesus' description earlier, they still thought of themselves as having a measure of greatness. Their delusions of grandeur about glory and greatness caused them to miss the point. The point is this. True greatness has gravity. Gravity. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. And if you're asking your mom to go and ask for a promotion, you're doing it wrong. If you're seeking to elevate yourself in such a way as diminishes or removes the exaltation that Jesus receives, you're doing it wrong. So Jesus says, you will drink my cup. And I wonder, did he look at Mrs. Ebony and say, remember, remember, mama, when... When you drank the cup, you ask for this. Acts twelve, verses one and two. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Turn to the book of Revelation. There is John exiled in the island of Patmos far removed from family and friends and comfort. They drank the cup. The cup of sacrifice, the cup of suffering. For God's glory and for our good. They think that the cup that Jesus is talking about means sharing his glory. What it truly means is sharing his suffering. Suffering for the sake of his name and for the cause of his kingdom. And there's a call in all of our lives to do that, to sacrifice ourselves, to set aside our agendas and ambitions for God's greater glory. And then he adds on in answer to the question Oh, and by the way, I don't decide who sits to my right and my left. Only my father decides the places you asked about. They're going, Rats! You asked the wrong person. Jesus had just set them this awesome example of what it means to be last, and yet still they long to be first. There's a reminder here for every one of us to beware the pursuit of personal status, elevated position, or our own agenda. I love what um, I came across a quote as I was preparing for this by a guy called Matthew Henry, who was a great Christian from centuries ago who, if you search his name, you'll find his whole Bible commentary, which is just awesome to use. And he said this, a lion in God's cause must be a lamb in his own. It's good, right? A lion in God's cause must be a lamb in his own. If you want your life to count meaningfully for the glory of God, you must become a lamb in your own cause and for your own glory. If you want your life to have an impact that is not just everyday, but is eternal, then this is what must happen. You must give up being a lion in your own cause, being defensive and directive and hungry for a self-satisfaction and a self-promotion. Aligning God's cause must, 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 Be a lamb in his own. True greatness is gravity. It's designed to bring you low in order that you might lift Jesus high. Is that not what we want? Is that not what our goal is? So true greatness is gravity. Second thing that Jesus' humility reminds us of is this, true community is not a competition. So the other 10 come back from whatever they were doing. And suddenly it dawns on them. They've, they've taken their eye off the ball in some ways. Something has happened. They're not quite sure. They can't quite put their finger on it. But, uh, we, but when they find out what's happened, what James and John have been up to, they, we've got a word in Glasgow, we say they were, they were pure raging. They're raging. The other time we're raging at James and John. Can not believe it? Now, we should not assume they were any better or had any different intentions. They were either slower or maybe just because their mums weren't there. I don't know. Where's my mum when I need her? They're going to go for counselling for that in later life, I'm sure. But their anger is revealing, and our anger is revealing when stuff like that happens. It tends to reveal something that's slightly off in our hearts in regards to these things when we get angry. How, how, do, how dare you? how could you? They were not innocent in regards to these things. Back at the chap- start of chapter 18, the disciples, and we should note that there's no names when this is said, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest? I took one of my girls, our, our, we've got four kids, uh, Matthew, Katie, Hannah, and Ben. Um, Matthew's 11, uh, Katie's nine, Hannah's Seven and Ben is six, and so I took Hannah out for uh, out for hot chocolate on on, on Thursday afternoon, just to kind of hang out with her before I came away and um, spend some time with her. And and we've been working through all the kids over the course of the last week, and I'm going to and carry on next week with that a little bit. It's my way of kind of compensating them for me being away. Um, but we 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 play this game when we go, out and we say, okay, we're going to take turn about asking questions. What what's your favourite music? What's your favourite song? What's your favourite movie? Those kind of things, and we take turn about. And came Hannah's quest. Turn and said, Okay, what, what do you want to ask me? And she said, Okay, so you've you got four kids. I said, Thank you for helping me with that. So you've got Matthew, Katie, Hannah, and Ben. Okay, so you've got the four kids. Imagine you hadn't had any of us yet. Which one would you like to have first? <laughs> now I'm smart. I smelt a trap. <laughs> Who's your favourite? That's really what the disciples were asking Jesus back at the start of Matthew 18. Who's going to be the greatest? Who who are you going to promote? Who's going to be the best? Who's your, Who do you love most? I didn't answer the question. That was wise parenting, right? Am I right? I said, that was a bad question, Hannah. You don't want to ask that question ever again. So they all had that ambition within them. And when it comes to serving Jesus, I think there's a kind of twin challenge we have in regards to to all of this. There's those those of us who are ambitious and those of us who are ambivalent. Those of us who are ambitious, those of us who are ambivalent. The ambitious person is all about the career. They're all about the personal progression. They want to elevate themselves. They want to move fast. They want the role and the responsibility, the influence, the authority, and the position and the prominence. But Jesus asks you to sacrifice yourself. And that's a problem if you're ambitious. Then there's a the person who's ambivalent, where the ambitious person is all about the career, the ambivalent person, they don't care. They don't care. Why would I contribute? Why would, I'm quite happy sitting here, being a consumer, not getting involved. I don't really want any position or power or influence or anything like that. In fact, I don't really much want to do anything other than just say, here, I'm, I'm, I'm happily saved. And contentedly lazy. But Jesus asks you to take up your cross every day, and that's a problem if you're ambivalent. We are called to submit our lives to Jesus and see what He would do with them. That's what we get to do. The Creator King calls us and invites us to give our lives to Him to be used for eternal purposes, and we are hesitant. We are like the disciples. We are in serious error about kingdom priorities. So Jesus called them to him. He sees us kind of, he sees the raging. He sees the kind of, the bickering that's starting to break out. He says, okay, huddle. Come on, and you come. It's a teachable moment. It's a teachable moment. Jesus knows if they don't grasp this now, if they don't have some lesson from him echoing in their hearts in the coming couple of weeks, then it's going to be a disaster. They know, he knows that if they don't, he doesn't get to grips with them right now, they'll spend the, the coming days in conflicting difficulties. And so it is for us, unless we grasp these things, then that's a, there's a dangerous thing that pride will creep in and damage our relationships with one another and damage, more, of, more importantly, our relationship with God. Unless we as a church, so whether it's back in Harvest Glasgow, we've had our services now. They've been preached to and worshipped and all that kind of stuff. And says, even if, it, whether it's back in Glasgow or here in Niagara, unless we as a church grasp humility and service and commit to these things, being more and more of who we are, then we will see that the grasping that flows from that negative attitude leads only to grief. And Jesus says, just look at the outside world. And it's not difficult for us to see that the fruit of our grasping and greed is grief when we look at the world around about us. The, Jesus says, look at the world around you. The rulers lord over people and the greatest rulers lord over the lesser rulers and the whole thing is a mess. Is that how you guys are going to be with one another? That's what he's really asking them, them here. Are you guys going to be that with, like that with one another? Is that what this church is going to be? And then he says this, verse 26. you looking? Look down into this, verse 26. It shall not be so among you. I want you to hear that with impact and importance with which Jesus accentuates it. It shall not be so among you. Jesus calls us to something different. He calls us to something higher. We're not meant to replicate the world. We're meant to be a revolutionary body within the world. Directing people towards our great King Jesus. It shall not be so among you. If this is going to work, if this is going to be a thing, then it has to be a different thing. True community is not a competition. Apart from one verse I found. This one verse, Romans 12, 10, we'll get up on the screen for you. This is where you get to be competitive. Love one another with brotherly affection. Here's a competitive bit, you ready? Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, if we are to be competitive about anything, it is in regards to complimenting one another and committing to one another. We are called to be readily competitive identifying and affirming evidence of God's grace at work in the lives of you, our brothers and sisters. That's what we're called to be. We're, we're called to be cheerleaders for growth. Now, I would have brought pom-poms to demonstrate this, but we don't do pom-poms in Scotland. In fact, we don't do much by way of any kind of celebration in Scotland. So you just need to take a word for it. We're, we're called to be cheerleaders for growth. Cheerleaders for the growth in grace and godliness. Not with a sense of entitlement, but rather willingly standing aside in order to see other people progress and grow in their relationship with Jesus. My, my friend Charles Spurgeon said, said it well. Do not desire to be the principal man in the church. Be lowly, be humble. The best man or woman Okay, I hope you're reading it that way. The best man or woman in the church is the person who is willing to be a doormat for all to wipe their boots on. The person who does not mind what happens to him at all so long as God is glorified. That's the life we're called to live. That's the life you're called to live. You do not, the the kind of life that does not mind what happens to you as long as God is glorified. Does Does that describe your life? Does that describe how you're living? I don't care what happens to me as long as he is exalted, as long as he receives the glory. A desire to be first makes you last in the kingdom. That's why when you look at the qualifications about leaders in the New Testament, for example, it's about character more than it is about capacity. It's what's going on in their soul rather than a particular skill set. People who are meant to have influence in the church are those who are most invested in the church, but they are not just serving to receive standing. Our willingness to do the small things is a thing that will define if we are ready to be called up to be, to be in a position of leadership or influence, but nor do we do the small things in order to receive the call to a position a place of position or or leadership. And this is hard. We need God's help to discern our hearts in regards to these things because we are so messed up around about this idea of pride messes us up so much that it's hard for us to discern whether or not we are pursuing things for the right reasons or not. We need much of God's grace. We need much of God's help in regards to these things, which is why we needed Jesus to come and die on a cross for us. So true great, greatness is gravity. True community is not competition. Third thing that Jesus' humility reminds us of is this. True service makes me second. True service makes me second. Now, we don't, that doesn't sit well with us in, 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 in our culture. I'm not sure how it works here, but we've just had our school sports days. And every year I go on an annual school sports day rant. Um, So our kids go to a school where they don't have a competitive sports day. They have a participation day. And they play games in a circle and they compete for their team. But there's not, we used to do things like the potato and spoon race. Did you guys do that here? Do you know what? You're all looking at me blankly. This is just a Scottish thing. This is just a Scottish thing, who knew? It's like haggis. We need to elevate this to some kind of national holiday basically you had to run along with a potato or or an egg on top of a spoon and the person was the one who got to the the finishing line with the potato or egg still intact did you do that here? okay, okay, that's good you all just looked at me blankly (laughs) what was he talking about, this strange Scottish man? So so, so when I grew up we had these competitive things going on not anymore because you don't want anybody to feel as if they've lost missing the point entirely that losing is a life skill there are things for us to learn when we don't win. God has much to teach us when things don't go our way. Are we willing to celebrate being second because God has a bigger plan in store for us and something else that he wants to teach us and help us to learn? So Jesus says to them, we don't want you to Don't try and be, stop trying to be like the world. Stop taking these worldly attitudes into something that has nothing to do with the world, but it's to do with eternity and my kingdom. He says, whoever would be great among you must be a servant. He's saying the greatest thing we can do for one another is to serve one another. The things that will measure most in God's estimate is our willingness to put him and others before ourselves. The thing that will measure most in God's estimate is your willingness to put him and others before yourselves. So here's a list of questions I came up with to help us maybe discern our hearts in regards to these things. I think this has been recorded, so you may want to go back. I'm not sure I'm going to speak slowly enough, or you even understand enough of the words that I'm saying in order to be able to take note of them all. So maybe you can put it through Google Translate later on. Could you be content to come to this church and not lead? Can you be content to not be prominent, preaching, being in a ministry leader position, or up front in some capacity? How do you respond when someone doesn't say yes to you? How do you react when you or an idea you have is passed over? What if a person you would advocate, like Mrs. Zebedee, doesn't advance like you think they should? The greatest thing we can do for one another, one another is to serve one another, to have an attitude of service and humility. Don't care what happens to me as long as God is glorified. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave., Say, oh, 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 easy now. The servant thing I'm used to that. OK, I understand servant, leadership, servant, servant, service, right? I get that. The slave, hang on. Hold on a minute. Yet that is the example that Jesus gives us. We should note this. Jesus doesn't ask those who follow him to do anything that he hasn't done first. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as, so there's the example in verse 28, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if I was to go around the room and I was to ask, so that's a cue, okay, get thinking, because I'm going to ask. Okay, if I was to ask you, what, what would be your job title? Do you, do you work? What, what would your job title be? Engineer. You're an engineer, okay. So an engineer. I'm a pastor, okay, so that would be mine. So uh, somebody else, what would you, your job? Retired. You're retired, okay. There's a job title right there. <laughs> this much I know, I watch my parents and, and my, my wife's parents, and they're busier than they were when they were working there right, fair? And so... So we have these different titles, which describe us in some ways. And and here's how Jesus describes himself, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, even as the son of man. And we need to understand that term son of man is not just an everyday job title. It's an eternally awesome title, full of authority and awesome power. So even as we are called to follow his example, follow the example of service and being willing to make ourselves a slave for the glory of God, even as the son of man who had this eternally awesome title was willing to serve and become a slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served as would have been his right, but to serve, he stooped to serve He, it was demonstrated in how he served among people, how he drew alongside them, healing the sick, speaking kindly to the, to the poor, working miracles and teaching about his kingdom. Born in a manger, dying in a cross. That was timely, right? The, the baby crying when I was saying born in a manger. <laughs> That's awesome work. To the back, guys. He had more than anyone else, more than you, more than me, the absolute right to be served. So what does that do with your self-importance? What does that do with your self-entitlement? Your sense of entitlement. Eternity will reveal, most of all, his worthiness of our worship Yet the opportunity is there today to serve him. So why do we waste it by pursuing our own thing and our own ambitions and our own agenda? He didn't come to serve, but to serve Jesus Christ, God the Son, now seated at the right hand of God, came to serve you. Think again about that for a moment like we did at the beginning. And he gave his life as a ransom, and that word ransom is slave market language. He gave his life as a ransom for many as a recompense to pay for the cup that you have earned. He sold himself in order to save you. He made himself a slave to make you into a son. And all the while you squabble and scrabble for any advantage you can get. He made himself nothing in order that God would receive the glory in everything. And he sets you and I that example. He relinquished claim and title and position in order that people might be released back into relationship with God in order that you might be released back into relationship with God. And he calls you, he calls me, he calls us to do the same. Do you see how low he stooped do you see the humility of your Savior? Do you see the perspective it gives us? Do you see that the act of humility that you seem to fear is nothing in comparison to the journey from heaven to here? The things you count as humility's greatest loss is of no significance in comparison to the transaction of heavenly crown exchanged for a cross. You are made for something more, but it involves you becoming less. You have a heavenly and an eternal calling. That's what Jesus has given you, that's what His death on the cross provides for you. You have a heavenly and eternal calling, but it's drawing attention to someone greater than yourself. Are you ready for that? True service makes me, ser- makes me second. When Jesus died on the cross, it was first for God's glory, then for the good of those for whom he died, including you, if you would trust him. Our motivation for being second is always that God would be more clearly First. Your motivation for being second should always be that God would be more clearly first in your life. So is he? Humility allows you to live for something higher than you could ever hope. Service allows your life a greater significance than you could ever achieve by yourself. That's the kind of life, that's the kind of life that God's grace frees us to live. Let me pray. Father, we want to acknowledge that right now pride resides in our hearts and is kicking back against aspects of this message where we are called to humble ourselves. Father, we pray you'd help us in the midst of our self-defensiveness, self-justification, self-righteousness that we often have in regards to these things, our tendencies to think about how this is a great message for someone else to be paying attention to. Father, we pray you would home by your spirit your word in, in our hearts. You would transform us and change us and help us. We need your help. Humble as we pray. Give us a greater glimpse of who you are. Give us a greater understanding of the example that Jesus has set us in these things. Help us to be servants. Help us to be slaves, not for our good, but for your glory, which is always for our good anyway. Father, we pray that you would be first. You would be the the one we would be in pursuit of. Forget the pursuit of ambition. Forget the pursuit of agenda. Forget the pursuit of position. Father, only you and what you would have for us. Father, we make it pray that the greater thing our life would be about would be making you greater. That is our longing, that is our desire. Help us, we pray. Give us hum- the humility to pursue that with all we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.